Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us His Word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, This is the Word of the Lord. We then invite you to respond by saying together, Thanks be to God. You can follow along with the reading and the response on the screen. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared to for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All right, amen. You guys can grab a seat. Thanks, Justin. I'm sorry I doubted you there for a minute. You had it on lockdown. I was, uh, I was derailing you. So thanks, brother, for reading for us today. Uh, good morning, if I had a chance to meet you. My name is Ian. I have the privilege of being uh, one of the pastors here at the King's Church, and I get to open up God's Word for us today. But before we do that, uh, right now it's time for our uh, kids who are hanging out in Kingdom Kids to be dismissed. So if you are in our preschool class, you can come on over here to this side. And if you're in uh, K through 1, right on over here to this side. So uh, go ahead and make your way back there. Hope you guys have a good time in Kingdom Kids. 
And uh, today is a little bit of a special Sunday here at the King's Church. If you're here visiting with us, first of all, thank you so much for being here. Um, Typically, we are working through a book of the Bible, kind of just preaching line by line, uh, verse by verse through those. Uh, But today, we have a special occasion. It is a Compassion Sunday uh, here at the King's Church. And so we're going to spend some time, uh, especially at the end of service, talking about our partnership with Compassion, uh, hearing some of the uh, updates on a church plant that we have helped uh, sponsor with Compassion. That's in Northeast Brazil. And uh, if you're here today and you're wanting more information about Compassion, maybe you even want to sponsor a Compassion child, uh, you'll have a chance to do that at the end of service. But uh, before we jump to that, uh, what is more important than even just the King's Church or even Compassion as an organization is reminding ourselves of the motivation, reminding ourselves of the why behind the work of caring for the least of these, to borrow a phrase from that passage that Justin just read for us. Because we think about ministry to the least of these today, uh, I think there's some, some things going on simultaneously that can make this particularly challenging. All right, the first is this. In a digital information age, there is truly an overwhelming awareness of the needs and the suffering happening all around the world, isn't there? Uh, Alan Noble in his uh, great book, You Are Not Your Own, says this. He says, the modern person is aware of more suffering and more injustice than a person living in any other time in history. Now, that doesn't mean that there is more suffering, but it does mean that I am aware of far more than I can ever do anything about. Anybody feel that at all? Right, in the digital age, we are connected nonstop with all of these things happening around the world, and if we're not careful, that reality can actually paralyze us. It paralyzes us because in a secular world that claims we must care about every single thing happening around us, uh, we might begin to feel like our work in this area doesn't really do much. It doesn't really matter. So I think that's the first dynamic of play. The second is this. uh, People can engage in this kind of work in caring for the least of these for all sorts of different reasons, can't they? There can be mixed motives for this work. Some people uh, maybe have a sense of guilt. They feel bad about what's happening and then they are kind of operating out of that posture. Uh, Certainly in the world that we live in, there can be a prideful component to this, right? There's the idea of virtue signaling. Uh, People can care about the least of these because it actually helps their brand and their reputation. Uh, Maybe for some, there's this idea of trying to earn back favor with the Lord or buying penance for things that have gone wrong in our lives. So here's the reminder in light of that that I want to encourage us with this morning. First of all, this work of caring for the least of these, it truly matters. And the reason why it truly matters is because it matters to Jesus. Okay, this work matters. And there is no better motivation for this kind of work than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, any other motivation, any other foundation, any other compelling reason to do this will eventually fall short. The gospel for the people of God must be our motivation for caring for those who are in need. So this morning, as we look at this passage from Matthew 25, uh, here's our main idea, and then I want to pray for us before we jump in. True disciples of Jesus are so transformed by the gospel that the king's interests joyfully become their own. True disciples of Jesus are so transformed by the gospel that the king's interests joyfully become our own. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful uh, this morning for the chance to be uh, here in this building, uh, to be here for the purpose of worshiping you, Jesus, our King, who is worthy of that worship. 
and for the chance to be reminded and encouraged and exhorted from your word. And so I pray right now, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear. You would give us eyes to see and hearts that are softened to respond to the good news of the gospel. May we, before we even think about those in need, before we think about anything else going on in our world right now, may you focus our attention on you, Jesus. Reorient ourselves back to you in this time, away from all the other things that tend to distract us, that burden us, that weigh us down. And in your kindness, may you both draw us to repentance and also to a greater worship of you. May you stir us up for love and good works, and may we be a people who proclaim the good news of the king and the kingdom of God to the people around us, whether it be here locally or halfway around the world. Stir us up for that work today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this story from Jesus, this teaching about the sheep and the goats, it's a, it's a pretty controversial passage, and we'll talk about why as we work through it together. But what I want to do is just kind of take the three main characters in the story. I want to talk about the sheep, I want to talk about the goats, and then I want to talk about the king at the end. Now, the context here is that the disciples have just asked Jesus about the signs of the end of the age. And we're at the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry here in Matthew 25. In fact, this is his final teaching to the disciples before he shares the Last Supper with them and prepares for the cross. And so let's look back in the passage beginning in verse 31 and set the context a little further. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Now, I know most of us in here are not farmers, right? Maybe there's a few. Actually, I know there's a few. Okay, but most of us are not farmers, okay? Uh, sheep and goats, very similar-looking animals. They often spend a lot of time together grazing in the fields. Uh, however, they would be separated for a few important tasks, such as shearing or milking, or sleeping at night. Now the sheep had more wool to keep them warm, so at night they would bring the goats inside and would take care of them. And in Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he comes and what does he call himself? He is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd over the flock of God. But that role of being a good shepherd will also come at the end of all things. He will take up the role of a shepherd in judgment of separating the sheep from the goats at the end of all things. As we recite often in the Apostles' Creed here at the King's Church, Jesus has ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And when that happens, the sheep in this story will go to his right, the place of honor and authority. And then the goats will go to the left, the place of dishonor and shame. Now the obvious question is, well, who are the sheep and who are the goats? What separates the sheep from the goats in this story? What is the difference between the two? And Jesus tells us, beginning in verse 35, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. But then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So who are the sheep? The sheep, according to Jesus, are the ones who acted toward the needy, toward the least of these, as he calls them. He is separating the sheep from the goats by their evaluation and their care and concern for those who are in great need. And indeed, the sheep in the story have provided the basic necessities for human life, haven't they? I mean, they fed the hungry. They gave water to the thirsty. They welcomed the stranger. Being a stranger in the ancient world uh, was a dangerous reality. If you were traveling a great distance and you found yourself at a place overnight, Even the inns of the day were dangerous and often crime-ridden. Hotels, or certainly Airbnbs as we think of them today, are a modern amenity. If they weren't going to spend the night out in the open somewhere, they needed to be welcomed into a home. In fact, the early Christians developed a reputation for just that kind of hospitality. They clothed the naked. Nakedness was a sign of poverty and an inability to buy clothing. They visited the sick and the imprisoned. You see, before modern medicine, visiting the sick would mean providing companionship, potentially at the end of someone's life. They had no idea what may have been wrong and how long they had. In the last place you would ever want to find yourself in the first century is in a Roman prison. There were places of punishment and often great isolation. One commentator said that people avoided Roman prisons like they avoided the plague. And to treat people humanely in a prison would have been an astonishing and startling reality. Now, I want to make an important observation that's often overlooked in this passage. You may have caught it in the reading, but when Jesus says, you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, anytime Jesus uses that term brothers, which also encompasses sisters, by the way, it's the language of family, he's always referring to other disciples and believers of Jesus. So he seems to be indicating when you care for the least of these in the family of God, you are caring for Jesus himself. Now, does that mean we don't care about the needs of our neighbors? Does that mean we don't care about the needs of those who may not be Christians? Well, surely not. Here's the pattern of the scriptures in this regard. The emphasis begins here in the church, and then it moves outward to the world. Listen how the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians 6. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Two important phrases there, by the way, as we have opportunity. If you really resonated with my introduction with being overwhelmed by the needs of the world around us, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, as we have opportunity. You are not the savior, but we do have opportunity. As we have opportunity, Let's seek to do good to all, but especially those who are of the household of faith. That means that we surely must care for the least of these outside the church, but the challenge seems to be this. If we can't do that in here, how are we going to do it out there? If we can't start in here caring for one another, how can we possibly care for those who are out in the world? Our care for those outside the church is an overflow of our care for those inside of it. After all, it was Jesus who said in John 13, all people will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. See, Jesus' words here are a challenge to all of us 
who might like to remain private and comfortable in our day-to-day lives. This is why we are called to live the Christian life together as a family, in order that we might care for one another in this way. This is the ordinary beauty of life in the local church. Being joined together pushes back against any sort of mentality that hears about the suffering of our brothers and sisters and says, man, that sounds really hard, but that's just really not my problem. No, friends, we are responsible for one another. We are called to jump into the mess together. When someone has a need, we do all that we can to come alongside them. We are to bear one another's burdens. This is what the sheep are commended for. Now, I said this was a controversial passage. The reason that has long perplexed readers of the Bible is because this teaching, it sounds a little bit worksy, doesn't it? On the surface, it doesn't seem to fit with that message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, that we hold dogmatically to. I mean, are the sheep given this place of honor in the kingdom because of their good works? What's going on here? Well, there's a few observations I want to draw your attention to that I think help us in this regard. The first is this, and this is the most important thing. Did you notice the response of the sheep? The sheep in this story are surprised. The sheep are surprised. That's the key to the whole passage, I think. The righteous, when they hear Jesus commend them for all this activity, they kind of go, well, that's great and all, Jesus. But when exactly did this happen? We honestly don't remember. That's the thing we can't miss. They are completely unaware, which means this. They haven't been keeping track of their good works. If this parable were about good works getting you in, then surely they would have been keeping track. They would have made sure that Jesus' list lined up with their list, right? But that's not the response. Instead, the sheep, the righteous, they acted this way simply because this is who they are. It has less to do with their actions and more about who they are. This is what sheep do. Brothers and sisters, the sheep and the goats is not a teaching about working our way into heaven. It is a teaching about the transformational power of the gospel. The righteous here have been so radically changed, so radically transformed by the gospel, the good news of God's grace toward the undeserving, that it just simply was a part of who they are. Their care for the least of these was an evidence of their faith, not the basis of it. The good works of the righteous were the fruit of the gospel being lived out in their life, but it was not the root. The root just as it is elsewhere in the rest of Scripture, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on their behalf. That when they see the kindness of God toward them in Jesus, they are moved to repentance and faith. The sheep are surprised. They're not keeping track. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the sheep are rewarded in inheritance of the kingdom from their father. Think about that word inheritance for a moment. You don't earn an inheritance. No, an inheritance is given to you by nature of your relationship. As Pastor Josh from Tallahassee said a few weeks ago, all that belongs to Christ by rights belongs to us by grace. And here, the inheritance language is reminding us that we have been given a grace and a mercy because of our relationship with God our Father. Charles Spurgeon says this on this reality. He says, a man does not fear to lose that which he wins by descent from his parents. If heaven had been the subject of earning, 
We might have feared that our merits had not really deserved it. But when we do know whose sons we are, we know whose love it is that makes glad our spirits. And when we inherit the kingdom, we shall enter it not as strangers or foreigners, but as sons coming to their birthrights. That's the language that's used. So the sheep are surprised. They're given an inheritance. And then secondly, they're inherited, or thirdly, excuse me, there, I know how to count. Uh, thirdly, the inheritance is being received from before the foundation of the world. Before any good or bad things took place, God had prepared this kingdom on the basis of grace. It was not their goodness that all of a sudden earned them this. They did not take possession of it. It was God's goodness and God's grace that had already prepared them for it. That is the sheep. The sheep have been so transformed by the good news of the gospel that they turn outward and they care for the least of these. But the sheep are not the only ones that Jesus addresses. The goats, on the other hand, he picks up in verse 41. And the language is hard. It says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishments, but the righteous into eternal life. You'll notice the language is exactly the same as the sheep, just in the negative. The goats did not do any of these things. They failed to show any evidences of having been changed and transformed by the gospel of the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. No one here wants to be a goat, right? Now, I know we use goat a little differently right now. Maybe some of you are striving after that greatest of all time tag, all right? But here in the passage, Jesus doesn't have that in mind. Nobody wants to be a goat here. No one deep down is reading this and thinking, oh man, I hope I'm not, I hope that that's my reality. Everyone wants to receive the blessing of being in the kingdom. But here's the scary thing. The goats are just as surprised as the sheep, aren't they? It's the exact same response of surprise. They fail to see that they've done anything wrong. So what do we make of that? Well, if we zoom out for a minute, there is a theme that Jesus is developing here in this final teaching. Right before this, he told his disciples two other parables. The first is the parable of ten bridesmaids. Five of them prepared wisely for the coming of the groom by bringing extra oil for their lamps. They were charged with leading kind of this procession at night. And five of them were foolish and didn't bring any extra oil. And when the groom was delayed, they were left out of the wedding celebration because they failed to prepare. Then he moves on to the parable of the talents. A master entrusts talents, which is money, to some of his servants. Then he leaves for a long time, and when he returns, he expects that these servants have yielded a return on the money that he entrusted to them, which most of them do. But then there is one wicked servant who takes that talent and buries it in the ground and does nothing with it. And when the master returns, he digs it up and says, here's your money back. But he is condemned for his lack of action his lack of doing something. Then we get here right on the heels of that to the story about the goats, and what do the goats do? They fail to act 
when they see people in need. Are you sensing the theme? Over and over again, Jesus is warning of the danger of the sin of omission. The sin of commission is when you are actively participating in a sinful thing. But sins of omission, as James defines it in chapter 4, it's a, def- it's a failure to do what we ought to do. That theme is running through here. Jesus is making the startling claim that being indifferent toward the least of these, especially the least of these, my brothers and sisters, being indifferent toward the hardships of your neighbors is ultimately an indifference toward him. This is the similar point being drawn out in the parable of the Good Samaritan that you're probably familiar with. Remember, that famous story begins with a lawyer testing Jesus, questioning him. And he rightly responds that the whole law is summed up as you shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But then seeking to justify himself, what does he ask? Well, who really is my neighbor, Jesus? You see, he's trying to wiggle his way out of having to do something when he sees a need. And I think we need to take this very seriously. Let's be honest, in our own minds, we tend to divide up the sheep and the goats between the good people over here, and then like the really, 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 really bad people over here. And when we think about judgment, when we think about what Jesus is describing here, we think it is reserved for just the worst of the worst, don't we? But here's what Jesus is saying, and it ought to jump out from the page for us as a warning. It is not necessarily the really, really, really bad people that face judgment. It's those who fail to act appropriately toward the groom or the master or the king. I don't want to make us pause for a moment. Jared Wilson says this, it's startling. He says, hell is real and eternal because God's holiness is real and eternal. The frightening thing is that to enter hell, all one has to do is nothing. All you have to do to go to hell is not rock the boat. Accept the status quo. Hell is quite easy to enter. But outside of Christ, because outside of Christ, we stand condemned already. We simply, we need simply to do nothing. The sins of omission is what marked the goats. It's what marked the wicked servant. It's what marked the foolish bridesmaids. So what do we do in the face of that? What hope do we have? How do we get in on this gospel transformation so that our lives look like the sheep and not the goats? How are we freed from either keeping score or how are we freed to wake up from our negligence to the needs around us? Well, I think to answer that, we can't look first at the sheep and just try to emulate them. We also can't just look at the goats and try to avoid them. In fact, as crazy as this sounds, I don't think we can even start by looking at the least of these first. Instead, if we're really going to experience the transformation that's described here, we have to start by looking at the king. We have to look at the king. I learned this week that this is the only place in Jesus' teaching where he explicitly refers to himself as a king. We've been reading in CBR, and maybe you'll sense it. He, he talks a lot about, you say that I'm a king at the end of his life. And he talks a lot about the kingdom. Of course, it's assumed all through his ministry, but the only place he explicitly connects the dots is right here in this passage. That's a little bit of a freebie for us at the King's Church, but I feel like you should know that. But why is that important? Well, that's important because if Jesus is identifying himself as the king, that means his kingdom ought to be marked by what's going on in this passage. And while Jesus as king is a hidden reality to most right now, there is indeed a promised day coming. It's the day that we sang about in that first song where all will recognize his royalty. 
where every knee will bow, where the nations will stand before him in judgment and give an account, and all people will see his glorious throne. So as we await that day in the future, there's two profound realities about the king that we must grasp if we're going to be transformed by the good news of his coming kingdom. The first is this, that Jesus, as the king, he identifies with his people. But even more profoundly than that, King Jesus identifies with the lowliest of the citizens of his kingdom. And what kind of king does that? I mean, most kings don't even want to acknowledge the lowly, if we're being honest. They want, if you're going to see a representation of the kingdom that they're leaving, I mean, who do you want to show off, right? The bright, those who have it all together, the successful, those who are thriving and flourishing. But that's not where King Jesus is found in his kingdom. He is not found amongst those who have it all together. The gospel tells us that Christ has so taken our concerns and our state upon himself that when you did it to that hungry person, when you did it to that thirsty person, when you cared for the least of these, you cared for him. When Saul, later known as the Apostle Paul, was persecuting and murdering Christians, and Jesus strikes him blind and shows up and says to him in a vision these words in Acts chapter 9. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not my people, not the church? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with the lowly. He identifies with the suffering. He identifies with the least of these. And that's an incredible picture of the character and nature of our king, isn't it? This is his grace and his kindness. We must get wrapped up in that reality. If we are going to participate in the kingdom, we must realize that Jesus identifies with the lowly, with those who are in need, which I think means we have to even take this one step further. You see, brothers and sisters, if we are to be stirred up with care and concern for the least of these, if we are to take on the interests of our King Jesus as our own interests, Here's, I think, the final step that must happen. We have to see ourselves in the least of these. The way that the righteous are so moved and so transformed by the gospel is because they recognize themselves in that place of need. See, when we realize that we were hungry and Jesus fed us with the bread of life, when we realize that we were thirsty but Christ gave us living water, when we realize that we were strangers, but yet we are welcomed into the family of God as a brother and a sister and a son and a daughter, when we realize that we were naked and we were clothed in Christ's righteousness, when we were sick with sin and healed by the stripes of Jesus, when we were in prison, slaves to our sin, but ransomed at the cost of his own blood, when we find ourselves there and we see that Jesus has met us there at our worst, at our greatest need, That's where our joy is found. That is where we begin to be changed by the gospel. That is how we are transformed so that the interests of the king become our interests. Uh, Right back before COVID hits, back in the the good days, uh, February of 2020, honestly, I got to travel with uh, Pastor David and Pastor Pat. We got to go with Compassion to uh, Tanzania. And uh, while we were there, we uh, traveled to, uh, without a doubt, the most remote part of the entire world that I will ever be in, ever. Uh, We went to the middle of the African bush, 
and when we finally got there, after like four hours of driving and crossing places that could have killed us, uh, we met this guy named Peter. And Peter uh, was a, a pastor at this uh, church uh, out in the middle of nowhere, Africa. And we were kind of getting to know him, and he shared his testimony with us, and it was incredibly powerful. Uh, he was an alcoholic, and he had visited all of these local tribal witch doctors to try to get help. But no one could deliver him from this problem, and so he was beginning to despair. He was contemplating suicide, but he decided he would give one last doctor a visit that someone said can help, and he went and encountered this uh, doctor named Jesus. He heard the gospel of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how he can change and transform you by his grace and his mercy. And Peter put his faith in Christ, and the power and hold of alcoholism was broken. He was a new man. He began preaching Jesus to these tribes that he had come out of, but the tribal doctors in town didn't like this new doctor. And they literally put a curse on his family, and his family members start dying. And the tribe refuses to help him even bury them unless, they, unless he throws away his faith in Christ. He's considering throwing it away as it gets worse, and then he hears the story of Job's suffering. And he finally says to them, listen, you can take my entire family, but I'm not turning away from this good news of Jesus that I know. He's continued ministering in this middle of nowhere, Tanzania, ever since then. He is caring for those who are in incredible need. He's planted 10 churches in the African bush. He pastors a church that hosts a development center for 100 compassion kids. I remember that me and David and Pat were hearing this man's story and just moved by just the incredible power of the gospel. Now, if you ask Peter why he was doing that, why would you give your entire life at such a great cost to care for people in incredible need, he would tell you because he himself had an encounter with the grace of God. He knew that Jesus visited him as the least of these when he was in his greatest need. So how could he in turn not then go outward and show, not indifference, but compassion to the people around him? And brothers and sisters, I want to challenge us today. How could we also not do the same? If you're here this morning, have you recognized yourself in this place of need. If not, I want to encourage you that Jesus is there and he stands ready to save. He's not found amongst the proud, he's not found amongst those who have it all together, but he's found amongst the humble and the lowly and those who know that they are sick and in need of help. And friends, as we find ourselves there, I think we'll find that the king's interests the agenda of the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that looks awful upside down to the world around us, all of a sudden will joyfully become our lifeline. The interests and the agenda of King Jesus joyfully become our own. And as we do that, we proclaim the good news of the gospel to a world in desperate need of the hope of a savior. So church, let's link arms together and let's keep running after that together, shall we? Amen. Well, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are king, that you have ushered in your kingdom, and that you're not picking the spiritually elite or the best of the best and those who have it all together to be citizens, but you are picking uh, messy, broken sinners like us who are always works in progress uh, to be citizens. Thank you for your grace and your mercy in that way. I pray today uh, there's those here in this room who have not seen themselves in the least of these, that they might 
humble themselves, that they might be moved by your kindness and your mercy uh, toward repentance, to turn from our sin, turn from all the other things we might be tempted to find our hope in, and to run to you, to cling to you as our only hope. Lord, for those who do know you, and for those in this church, God, who are numerous, who are on the front lines of caring for the least of these in all sorts of different walks of life, may you encourage them in that work. May we not grow weary in doing good, but may we trust that you are seeing through all of this work, and in due season we will reap a harvest. Help us be faithful to the calling of making much of you, Jesus, and participating in your kingdom. Holy Spirit, move in a mighty way toward that end, we ask all in Jesus' name.